Good morning, church. Um, this past Tuesday, um, shortly before six uh, in the morning, our dear sister Gail Dahlstrom passed away after several months of battling cancer. Um, There are a lot of you that didn't know Gail personally. Um, for those of us that did know Gail personally, we're, we're going to miss the incredible woman of God that she was. Um, if, if you're uh, new to New Community or visiting us for the first time, uh, I, I want you to know something about our church, and that is... Uh, we're a pretty tight-knit community around here. Um, we're not perfect. We are far from perfect. So if you're actually looking for a perfect church, uh, you're at the wrong church. Because we're far from perfect. But one of the things that we do is we try and show up and be fully present with our brothers and sisters during times of loss and grief. Uh, Gail made an enormous impact in the lives of, of, of people that knew her. Um, I've been saying for weeks now in this sermon series we're on that the real measure of our lives is not the stuff we acquire. It's not about successes that we obtain or the degrees or the houses. The real measure of our lives, I'm telling you, is about relationships people that you've invested in, people that invest in you, people that you've loved, people that love you, people that have journeyed with you. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, none of this matters. At the end of the day, none of the stuff that our culture and our world says that we should give our life, none of that matters. At the end of the day, it's going to be about people. A couple of weeks ago, I briefly reminded you of a passage in the Gospels, it's a story about a a paralyzed man who can't come to Jesus. So four of his friends do the ridiculous thing, because they can't get to Jesus, of tearing a hole in the roof and lowering this guy down so he can go to Jesus. And I ask you this question. Every single one of us, will, there will come a time when we either be unwilling or unable to get to Jesus. And when that time comes, I ask you this. Who's going to carry you? Who will carry you to Jesus? Do you and I have two, three, four people in our lives that we could look at and say, I've invested in you, you've invested in me, and so I could no longer or unable to go to Jesus, and so will you carry me? Do you have friends who value you so highly because of the investment that you've made that they wouldn't leave you behind? If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. The real measure of our lives is not how fast you go, but it's about how many people you have journeying with you. Hey, young people, why are you in such a hurry? Where do you want to get to? Today, it is not going to be about Gail. I just, I just want you to know. Do you know why? 
I tell you. Because if you knew Gail, she hated being the center of attention. Just like her husband. So if Gail was here, she'd say, stop talking about me. I want you to talk about Jesus. So that's what I'm going to do today. Is that okay? I'm going to talk about Jesus. There will be a time for us to celebrate the life of Gail on February 22nd. You have the information in your bulletin at 1 p.m. right here. And I hope that the entire church will show up, whether you knew her or didn't know her, as we as a church come around and celebrate this woman's life. But the reason why I feel okay talking about Jesus is because we've been on a journey of following Jesus. By the way, can I just say, I just need to say up front, today is one of those days where metaphorically I need the church you to carry me. Is that okay? So please talk back, please clap, please shout, please say, Peter, keep going when I don't want to keep going. I need you to do that for me. Is that okay? We've been on a journey of following Jesus because we've been talking about discipleship and what it looks like to follow him with our lives. And the Apostle Paul reminds us what the whole point, the whole point and the aim of following Jesus is. Why are we doing this, following his example? This is what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Follow God's example. So he's saying, follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Therefore, as dearly loved children. I just want to stop here and just want to remind you, if you're in Christ, you're loved. The prayer that is most important to me is God help me to see myself as you see me. And I've been praying that for all of you this whole week. God, whoever is here today, everything that ails them is because they don't see themselves as you see them. They see themselves as they see them. Your love, children. Verse 2, and walk in the way of love. Walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to the Lord. The entire goal of the Christian life, the entire aim of discipleship and following Jesus is to be more like him. And being more like Jesus, Paul says, is that you and I walk in the way of love. That you and I be more loving To love well is the whole goal of the Christian life. Jesus summed up the commandments this way. Love God and love others as yourself. It's about loving well. And let me stop here. And this is where the whole morning is going. In order for you and I to love well, we need to learn how to grieve our losses well. If you and I are going to be people who love well, walk in the way of Jesus, we need to learn how to grieve and mourn our losses well. Church, are you hearing me? You say, why is that, Peter? Because grieving our losses well is the way that God enlarges our soul and enlarges our capacity to love well. Gary Sitzer, 
wrote a book called The Grace Disguise. He reflects in this book on the loss of his mother, his wife, and his young daughter from a horrible car accident. And in the book he writes, catastrophic loss by definition precludes recovery. Loss will transform us or destroy us, but it will never leave us the same. There's no going back to the past. It's therefore not true that we become less through loss unless we allow the loss to make us less, grinding our soul down until there's nothing left. But loss can also make us more. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. And please, 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 don't tell someone who's experienced loss. At some point, you'll get over it. We don't get over it. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took a permanent residence in my soul, but it enlarged it. And I love what he says here. One learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain. You and I learn the pain of others by suffering our own pain, by turning inside oneself and finding one's own soul. However painful, sorrow is good for the soul because the soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. I say here all the time, that you are not a product of individual decisions and choices. Community is what messed us up and community is what will heal you. Why? Hurt people hurt people. But I also found that heal people heal people. We are healed by what Henry Nouwen calls wounded healers among us. Am I talking to any wounded healers among us? We are healed because of the presence of wounded healers among us who did not allow their loss to make their souls smaller and harder, but allow their loss to make their souls larger. So that they can love others well. Family, a big part of following Jesus is learning how to mourn and grieve our losses well. It is vital to discipleship. The story of Job is a story of all of us. Now Job lost everything in one day. His 10 children die suddenly in a natural disaster. He loses all his wealth although he's one of the wealthiest men in the world and his health deteriorates to a point where he is physically unrecognizable. Most of us in this room may never experience catastrophic loss as Job experienced, but I'll tell you something that is true. All of us will experience losses, maybe more slowly over the course of our lifetime until every single one of us will find ourselves on the door of death where we'll leave everything behind. Relationships, possessions, even our health. And see, for me, the reason why I wanted to share this sermon with you this morning is because the dangerous thing that you and I can do is to say, I'm not like Carl who lost my beloved of 42 years. And we think to ourselves, so there's nothing for me to mourn or loss. And we miss out on the work that God wants to do to transform and enlarge our soul. Because I'll tell you what some of us have lost 
this morning as we look upon our lives. Some of you are experiencing loss of your dreams. Some of you have experienced loss of dreams of the career maybe you thought you were going to have. Some of us, the ministry that we dreamt about. I know for a fact that there's some of us who are mourning the loss of an idea of marriage that we had and never came to pass. Some of us mourning the loss of wanting children that's come to pass, that's not come to pass. There's loss of dreams. Some of us here mourning the loss of routines and stability and transitions. Many of you in this room have experienced enormous transitions this past year. You've changed jobs, you've moved cities, stages of life, you've become empty nesters in now taking care of aging parents. You've had new additions to your family. We all have experienced some form of loss through major transitions. And it's critical that you and I don't minimize when we go through transitions, just go, well, I went through transitions, but realize I've lost some things. I've lost some things. And some of us lost community. You said goodbye to people you loved, who moved away. Happens a lot here in Chicago. People you've invested in. When you lose a friendship, people you've invested in, that hits you. You can't minimize it. Some of us have lost wrong ideas about God. We've talked about following Jesus. And some of us come to realize that this Jesus that we followed all of our lives is not who we thought he was. And I tell you what, if you're a church kid and you grew up in church, losing your ideas about who God is can be traumatic. Loss of illusions about the church. Where do we even begin with this? It's not the perfect family with perfect people. Some of you thought it was. People disappoint us. New community. I will disappoint you. I'm going to disappoint you. We disappoint each other. If you're ever in community, you will experience disappointment, disillusionment. And before we get all heighty and mighty judgmental, can we all just agree that we're all hypocrites in transition? And then none of us can sit in judgment that we all fall down because the ground at the foot of the cross is leveled. And not one single one of us can sit and go, well, I have no, we all disappoint each other and lose our illusions about the church. And then of course, some of us experience catastrophic loss. Someone we loved committed suicide this year. Some of us lost loved ones through an affair, divorce, cancer, a child who was born severely handicapped. Every single one of us, <laughs> am I talking to anybody this morning? Every single one of us faced losses, deaths in our lives. It's not a matter of if, but when. The problem is, and the reason why I need to speak on this, and some of you are like, I've never heard anything like this in church. The reason is because we live in a culture well, we don't know how to grieve our loss as well because we don't know what to do with feelings like pain and grief and sadness and anger. We don't know. I don't grieve my loss as well. Can I just confess that this morning? Do you know that I grew up in a family where I saw the godliest examples of parents? My parents are flawed people, but they're the most amazing godly people I know. 
But the only time I ever saw my mother cry was at the funeral of her father, and I was six years old. The only time I saw my Korean dad cry was 40 years ago at the funeral of his mother. These are godly men and women who've shaped me, but I grew up in a family where I didn't know what to do with painful emotions. Some of you even grew up in a family where we were to- you were told that emotions like sadness and grief are weak, so shove it, deny it, ignore it. How many of us grew up in families where we saw no examples of healthy models of what to do with grief? And we live in a culture where people don't know how to grieve and mourn. 24-7, you and I are bombarded with vivid images of loss, of, of death, of disasters. And it's analyzed and reported, but it's never lamented and grieved. We're bombarded 24-7 on our phones everywhere with incredible tragic loss. But we live in a culture that doesn't know how to grieve and how to lament. So what do we do? We just numb it. We just numb the pain. We numb it by overworking. Why are you working 70 hours a week? We numb it watching mindless television for hours. We numb it drinking. We numb it getting high. We numb it through meaningless sex. Some of us numb it through ministry. I did for years. We don't know what to do with pain, so we just numb it. Can I just just stop here and ask some of you, how long are you going to minimize your pain by working and shoving it and denying it and drinking? And my, How long are you just going to ignore it? And then, yeah, I'm really sorry that the church sucks at this. Because I grew up in a church where I was literally afraid that every time someone experienced loss, someone inevitably was going to quote Romans 8.28 and say, well, God works for the good of all things, so there's a purpose behind everything, so just trust God. I'm going to tell you something, and maybe theologically you will disagree with me. I don't believe that everything happens for a reason. We live in a fallen world among fallen people. Not everything happens for a reason, but I believe that in everything that happens, God is able to bring glory to himself, bring good to us, and salvation to the world. That's what I believe. And, 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 and so when somebody wants to quote Romans 28, what I felt was like, it's not safe to fear, to doubt, to feel sad, because maybe I'm not spiritual. Maybe I'm not strong enough of a Christian. Maybe strong Christians are people who are immune to emotions. The problem with that is, and how do you explain Jesus? Because biblically, the opposite is true. Look at Jesus. Do y'all love Jesus? This is what I love about Jesus. Because if a strong Christian is someone who's immune to sadness, grief, and doubt, then he's the perfect embodiment of weak faith. But here's what we find. John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. Please don't gloss over those words. The context is his 
close friend, Lazarus, has died, and he is in the tomb for three days, and Jesus walks up to the tomb, and Jesus weeps. And do you realize, do you realize that Jesus knows that Lazarus is going to rise from the dead? Jesus knows that there is resurrection. Jesus knows that there is good news, and yet, and yet, he weeps. Do you hear me? He knows that God is at work. He knows that God is going to bring resurrection. He knows that there is hope, and yet at the same time, he weeps. It's okay to mourn and hope at the same time. It's okay to mourn and hope at the same time. You're just being like Jesus. You're just being like Jesus. I can say that Gail will rise again in resurrected body without cancer, without disease, but I could at the same time mourn her death and be sad. That's okay. Mark 3, 5, and he looked around at them with anger. And he's talking to the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and says he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Let me just stop here and say this. If you're not a Christian here, and your idea or image of God is someone who's angry and just resentful and wanting to, Jesus says that God is grieved when someone rebels, when someone pushes him away, when someone says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. His heart is grieved. Because he wants you. Luke 19, 41. But he, Jesus, came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead. He began, it says, to weep. Here's what we find of Jesus. Far from someone who's immune to sadness, grief. Here's we find Jesus. Someone who is fully in tune with his emotions, but unafraid to express it. Why is this a discipleship issue? I'll tell you exactly why. Because following Jesus just doesn't mean that we pay attention to what he said. Following Jesus means we pay attention to how he lived. And how he lived was someone who fully embodied his humanity and experienced emotions and expressed it. Emotions that make some of us uncomfortable like anger and grief and sadness. You know what's at stake? At stake is the transformational work that God wants to do in and through us. Let me say that again. What's at stake is when we minimize, medicate, or deny our pain, our losses, our feelings year after year. We miss out on the transformative work that God wants to do in and through us. And the choice, church, is up to you and me on ultimately whether these deaths will be terminal, crushing our spirit and life, or they'll open us up to new possibilities. And depths of transformation in Christ. Grief and mourning and loss will not leave us the same. It will either shrink our soul or enlarge it. It will either make you hard or cause you and I to be wounded healers among us. Who could love others well. So what do I do, Peter, to grieve and mourn lost today? Can you start here? Painful honesty is better than comfortable avoidance. 
Painful honesty is better than comfortable avoidance. It is uncomfortable. I am uncomfortable confronting the fact that I am in deep mourning and grief. I am uncomfortable, but the best thing that I can do is be rigorously honest with where I'm at. It's to be rigorously honest with what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing. And in the context of a family that loves me and knows me, express that freely. Is that okay? So my question to you is, what does it mean for you to sit here today and be rigorously honest about the losses in your life? Are you angry? Are you sad? Are you depressed? Are you discouraged? Are you feeling hopeless? The most important thing, if we are going to move any further, is to stop and saying, what does it mean for me to be rigorously honest? and allow myself to feel. I know that some of us are such control freaks that we go, I will not allow myself to feel anything because once the cat is out of the bag, I don't want these emotions to my friend. Unless we're honest and fully present with our emotions, there is no growth, there is no maturity, there is no healing. I've experienced some catastrophic loss the past few years. So I've had to think about biblical grieving for a while now. And Job has become sort of a a model for me on how to grieve my loss as well. And I just want to mention three things and then we're going to take communion. To grieve our loss as well. To follow Jesus' example and to love well. First and foremost, please pay attention. Pay attention. Grieving well is not possible without paying attention to your sadness, to your grief, to your fear to your anger. You see, Joe paying attention to his grief and being honest with God about his feelings. I canceled just about everything this week. I made the foolish, foolish, foolish decision after Gail passed away on Tuesday to go to a staff meeting at 11.30 on Tuesday that morning. And the staff will tell you that I was utterly useless. Because I literally couldn't focus. And I sensed the spirit going, I need you to take the rest of the week so you could pay attention to what you're feeling. Job screams out as he pays attention in pain, holding nothing back. He even curses the day of his birth. Job 3.3, may the day of my birth perish if only my anguish could be weighed and all the misery be placed on the scales. It would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. Job tells God exactly what he's feeling. For 35 chapters, Job doesn't hold back the horrors of his loss and he screams out at God and confesses confronts it. Do you and I forget that two-thirds of the Psalms written by David are laments and complaints to God? And do you realize that it's the only worship manual in the Bible? 
It's an entire book filled with, with someone who loves God, honestly pouring out feelings of anger and grief and doubt. And in case you're wondering, yes, God could handle it. We have an entire Old Testament book called the Book of Lamentations. And the book, and, the, and, the, and, the, and in Gethsemane, we have the Son of God crying out, why? Why have you forsaken me? Biblical grieving calls us to pay attention and to pour out our feelings and losses to God. And please give yourself permission to feel whatever you're feeling. Losses aren't something to get over. Take the time to grieve. Church, can I just ask you to be patient and gracious with me as I take my time to grieve Gail? Take the time to grieve our loss as well instead of running from pain. And speaking of running, I need you to slow down. You can't grieve in a hurry. 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 You can't grieve with the pack schedule. You can't grieve with the pack schedule. You can't grieve with the pack schedule. A pack schedule and a life filled with busyness might just be the sign that you're running from something. Why are you so busy? Is it maybe because if I could just keep myself busy, keep myself going, I don't have to think about the fact that I have all that loss and pain and grief in my life. If I can just keep myself busy, I don't have to think about what, I don't have to. When we don't pay attention to our pain and loss, it deadens our ability to love well, and we leak. If we do not process the very feelings before God honestly and deal with it, we leak. And our churches are filled with leaking Christians. You may sit there and go, I don't experience loss. Why are you passive-aggressive? Why are you sarcastic? Why do you use harsh words to your spouse? Why do you give silent treatment? And for me, the other really critical thing about paying attention is I'm realizing that you can't forgive someone from the bottom of your heart unless you've allowed yourself to feel the pain of what was lost. You will never forgive your parents unless you grieve and loss of your childhood. Let me say that again. You and I will never be able to forgive our parents unless we grieve well the loss of our childhood. You cannot forgive your parents unless you take some time to mourn and grieve what was lost. You can't forgive and hurry when someone forgives too quickly I worry whether they just want to run from pain you cannot forgive someone unless you grieve what was taken from you pay attention secondly learn to wait in the confusing in between the ability to grieve well requires us to trust God in the confusing in between it's the Saturday between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Does anybody here know of the experience of sitting on Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday? If you do, say yes. 
It's the day that comes after crucifixion and death, but the day of silence, a day of darkness, a day when we're going, God, I have no idea how or what or where or when. It's the day of disorientation. Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite Old Testament authors, talks about how the Psalms could be divided into three types of songs. First, there's orientation, seasons where we sense God's nearness and presence and delight. But inevitably, after orientation, there are always seasons of disorientation. These are seasons of suffering, dislocation, pain. When the bottom falls out, we wonder where God is. Saturdays. Does anybody know the experience of Saturdays? The confusing in-between when we feel doubt, resentment, isolation, and despair. And then inevitably disorientation gives way to reorientation when God breaks in and does something new. It's when joy breaks through the despair, when death gives way to birth. And I love how Walter Brueggemann says, these movements are not once and done, are they, church? There are seasons that are repeated throughout our lives. You see, spring is coming, but winter is here. Is anybody here in a season of winter? I want to remind you of something, and that is this. During winters, things might be bare, but things are not barren. There is life pulsating underneath, waiting to emerge. But we sit on Saturday. We sit in the confusing in-between. And church, I just want to say something to you. I hate waiting, especially when I don't feel like I'm in control. I could understand why Abraham waited 11 years for his promise and said, God, I'm tired of waiting, and had a child with Hagar called Ishmael. How many of us have birthed Ishmaels in our lives because we did not want to wait? We are more vulnerable to temptation on Saturdays than any other days. We are more vulnerable to saying, forget you, God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do on Saturday. And this is why Psalm 37, 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I'm going to declare this morning in the presence of my family that our God is just as much work on Saturday as he is on Friday and he is on Sunday. Because I believe in my heart of hearts that our God is faithful and he is true. His silence is not absence. His hiddenness is not abandonment. Do not let circumstances determine whether God is at work. I'm going to tell you right now, the circumstances are terrible indicators of whether God is at work. Because people looked at the cross on Friday and thought, where is God? And yet on Friday, God took the greatest evil and turned it into the greatest good. So what do you do? I'm going to I'm going to implore you on Saturdays, when you are going through Saturdays, when you are in a season of confusing in between, please wait with God and not just on God. 
Let me say that again. Don't just wait on God. Wait with God. One will change you and the other will frustrate you because when you wait with God, you realize it's about the relationship, not how, when, where. It's about the relationship and you recognize that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me in the waiting. You are with me. You are near. You are present. So I'm not just going to wait on God because waiting on God is just about when, where, and how, and the outcome. I choose to wait with God and say, Lord, I know you're with me. So I'm going to wait with you to, to God. Waiting is working, not wasting. So if there's anybody here who is facing a Saturday after some loss, wait with him. And not just on him. And lastly, let endings birth new beginnings. <laughs> Church, the great non-negotiable about life is that everything comes to an end. At some point, ministries, careers, everything comes to an end. It's the reality of living in the world. But I want to tell you and declare today that we are never a more fertile, we are never more fertile soil than when there is an ending for a new beginning because the central tenet of our faith says after death there always resurrection. I'm going to say that again after every death there is always resurrection. Do you believe this good news? This is where I bank my hope. John 12, 24, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new life. There is always life after death. It may not happen tomorrow, but I promise you, our Lord has risen from the dead. And after every death, Jesus says, there will be a resurrection. I place my hope that I will see Gail again someday in the resurrection, and that is the good news that I hold. But I wanna tell you that it's not just about the future. I wanna tell you that after every ending, there is always a beginning new life that God is waiting to birth. But it comes after losses, and losses are real. That's why they're painful. That's why they're difficult. But you and I hold on to this truth that whenever there is an ending, God doesn't just put a period. Whenever there's an ending, God says, there's an ending because I want to begin something new in you. Are you hearing me, church? Job 42, what did Job experience? And Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. For 35 chapters, as Job waits in the confusing in-between and shouts and cries out to God, but he leans and entrusts and he sees God. And he is transformed and changed. Cece, please come on up here. Here's what I'm learning about endings, church, and that is grieving is not just letting go, but letting it bless us. Let me say that once more. Grieving is not just about letting go 
allowing endings to come, but is lending endings give birth to beginnings and allow those beginnings to bless us. First, there is grieving the loss, and I am going to grieve this loss. Job grieves his loss. There's a finality to it. And if you are real with the emotions and pay attention, it's hard, it's difficult, it's painful. That's why losses are so hard. There's a finality. You can't get it back. But let me leave you with the quote from Parker Palmer who says, each time a door closes, the rest of the world opens up. All you and I need to do is stop pounding on the door that just closed, turn around and welcome the largeness of life that now lies open to our soul. What closed door? are you and I looking at today? So you and I have a choice. We could fight the endings that come, not trust God and take matters into our own hands. Every single one of us wants to experience the resurrection. Every single one of us wants God, some, God, wants God to do something new. But we can't keep doing the same old things. If you want God to birth something new, you and I stop doing the old things. So instead of fighting, we learn to trust, lean in, and say, God, I don't understand, but I'm gonna trust you in the confusing in between, knowing that just like seasons of life, after death, there's resurrection, there's hope, there's newness. What closed door are you looking at? What things do you and I need to let go? What things you need, do you and I need to surrender? What things do you and I, as we sit here today and saying, God, this is time now. I finally need to just let that go so that you might birth something new. And the last thing I want to tell you is this. I don't grieve my losses well, and I need you to do that with and for me. Suffering is inevitable, but suffering alone is intolerable. So I'm gonna leave you with Romans 12, five. In Christ, we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. So 15 verse says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Reminded this morning that God calls us to be an interdependent body so that when someone is hurting and someone is mourning, someone is grieving, we all feel that, amen? We all feel that. And I love the fact that Paul doesn't say anything about making somebody feel better. He just says what? He just says, be with them. Because when someone is hurting, they don't need answers to the why. What they need is a who, a presence with. Someone just to sit with you.
We've been talking about community and what it means to follow Jesus in community. My prayer is that you and I will be here for each other in these upcoming days and weeks. And live out the truth that we are one body. So mourn with those who mourn, grieve with those who grieve, hurt with those who hurt. Sit with them. Sit with them. During and after communion, there are going to be people up here who will pray with you. And three folks over there and three folks over here. And I just want to tell you that if you are sitting here today and maybe for the first time you're going, I never, ever thought that I might be grieving and mourning some loss. Or maybe you're saying, I know I'm grieving and mourning, but I've never told anybody. Or maybe you're just saying, I just need some help, man, and just some prayer. I want to ask you that as you take communion before and after to please, please, please ask one of our brothers and sisters to pray with you, pray for you.